Good morning, church. I'm so thankful to be gathered with you all this morning, even under these really unusual circumstances that we find ourselves in. I really do believe that the Lord is going to do something and is doing something incredible through these, these really strange and weird times that we're in. But I'm honored to share God's word with you all this morning. Um, we're going to be camped out in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 through 27, where Pastor Mark left off last week. So if you guys could turn there. We'll spend the majority of our time in this passage this morning. So Matthew 8, 18 through 27. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And the scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves but he was asleep and he went and, and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us before we jump in. Father in heaven, we praise you. Um, We praise you for your word. God, we praise you for um, the hard yet loving words of Jesus that say, follow me. God, I ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand what this, what this means. May we wrestle with this call this morning. Lord, I ask that, um, that you would be glorified in this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Oh God. Um, Amen. So this July, my wife and I are going to be celebrating nine years um, of marriage. Um, We met in Birmingham, Alabama, and we went to school in Birmingham and got married in Birmingham. About six months after we got married, we moved to the inner city of, of Birmingham, an area called Eastlake. We were part of a church planting team that was moving down into this area in order to do ministry and um, live out our discipleship by making disciples within that community. Um, our parents were obviously not super thrilled about that at the time, taking my new wife down to this, down to this community. Um, we, it was definitely the, the hood of Birmingham, um, but they were some of the most formative years of our life spiritually. We grew so much during, during that season, um, learning how to, how to pray with, with a small body of, of believers, learning how to disciple, um, in, in a, in a really challenging area. Um, it was, it was so fundamental for our, our walk with Christ. It forced us to really lean into Christ during that season. After our time in Isaac, we were there for about three years and the Lord opened up an opportunity for us out in Seattle, Washington, where we were working among immigrants and refugees in the Seattle area. We lived in a zip code that was 
one of the most diverse zip codes in North America. We had over 180 languages spoken in our school district. And once again, this was such a formative time for our, our faith journey and our walk. And, um, it was not by any means like an, an easy season. We were there for four years and we, we learned the challenges of, of working among, um, all these different people groups and working among people who are, who are very different from us, who believed very different from us, but another opportunity where we leaned into Christ and truly understood, began to understand what it meant to follow Jesus. The Lord gave us a business to start in Seattle and that business has led us here to Colorado. And we had been to Colorado several times before. Um, I have family that lives here in Colorado and we would come here for vacations to go hiking or skiing, enjoy Colorado because Colorado is awesome. And, and we, we loved it even before we moved here. When we moved to Parker in 2018, we were honestly shocked because we, we moved here. And for the first couple of months, we were really uncomfortable. Like it was such a strange thing because Parker is so nice. Everyone is so nice here. But it was, it was, we felt very out of our comfort zone especially based on the, the last where we spent the last seven years. And, but it did not take long at all for us to absolutely fall in love with every part of Parker. We love Parker. Now <laughs> our kids love Parker. Our whole family loves Parker. We love the parks, the playgrounds, the trails. <clears throat> we love the comfort and the security, knowing my family's safe. We, we love the, um, the proximity to everything that we would want or need. And as I was meditating on this passage this week, I was struck by my love for Parker and how, and especially when Jesus says these hard, but loving words to follow me. And I I hadn't considered those words since, since moving here to Parker, I thought about it way more often when I was in the, in those other contexts earlier in life. But since moving here to Parker, those words seemed a little bit more foreign to me. And I hadn't considered the weightiness of them here. And so I pray this morning that as we dive into this text, that we would meditate and pray upon these words of Jesus, that what does it mean for us to truly follow Jesus in this context here in Parker, Colorado, or wherever you may be, whether you're overseas or living in another state, whatever your context is, I pray that, that you would meditate upon these words. And as we read this passage, I also pray that, that we would see that nothing and no one is of greater value in your life and is more worthy to follow um, than Jesus Christ. So let's jump into this. So we see, we know that chapters five through seven um, are the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that anyone has ever preached uh, because Jesus preached it. The crowds were gathered at the Sermon on the Mount and they heard the astonishing authority and were amazed by Jesus's teaching. We get into chapter eight where Jesus heals, first he heals the leper, then he heals the centurion's servant, and then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And once again, the crowds are just forming. They are hyped about everything that Jesus is doing. And they're just amazed. I think that the crowds are, are there present with Jesus because they're waiting for him to do something spectacular. They're, they're wanting to be entertained or they're wanting to have their ears tickled by, by something that Jesus says that just shocks them. They're there for entertainment. I love how Matthew intentionally puts in verse 17, right before our passage, 
He says, this was to fulfill what was being spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. But what's interesting about that is that I'm sure that the crowds would love to know Jesus as the one who, who took their illnesses and bore their diseases. They want that Jesus. But do you think the crowds want the Jesus who's in the rest of Isaiah 53? I think that the reality of Jesus being the one who is despised and rejected, the man of sorrows, the one from whom men hide their faces. We will later see in the gospel that when Jesus becomes that man, that the crowds scatter, the crowds flee. They're, they are most unloyal to Jesus. They're only there to get whatever they need out of Jesus. Jesus is a good addition to their life, but he is not not Lord to them. There's this beautiful um, dichotomy that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, shares with us. He's Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian from the 1940s during the Nazi regime in Germany. And he talks about this, this idea of cheap grace versus costly grace. And Bonhoeffer, I think that Bonhoeffer points to the fact that cheap grace identifies or the crowds identify with cheap grace more so than, than costly grace, as we'll see in this, in this quote. So listen to what Bonhoeffer has to say. So cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace, costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit in the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not looking. He was not looking at this time and he's not looking now for flaky followers who are, who once they get the first hint of discomfort that they are gone. And we see that with the crowds. So Jesus is completely and fully worthy of our wholehearted loyalty to him. Cause he showed us in, in the last three chapters, four chapters that he has all authority, that he is the King of Kings, that he is the Lord of Lords. And so Jesus is completely worthy of our wholehearted loyalty. Jesus is also worthy of our undivided hearts. Verse 19, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's, it's a rare thing for a scribe to approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Most scribes would, um, as we'll see later in the gospels that, that most scribes don't don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But this guy says, I will follow you wherever you go. And he approaches him as teacher. And the way that Jesus responds to this man tells you everything that we need to know about this man's heart or intentions behind while, why he's saying this. Jesus can see that this guy has not quite counted the cost of following Jesus as a scribe. It is of utmost value and security for a scribe to devote himself to a good teacher. 
So this scribe is, is it being a good scribe in devoting and wanting to follow Jesus? Who's the greatest teacher of all, but, but this guy's job and his, um, his profession is he's wanting to follow Jesus for, for that alone, not because he wants to submit himself to the Lordship of Jesus. But this was of great value to the scribe. But what Jesus communicates next is that unlike any, any other teacher, that Jesus is not like any other teacher. And the way he's not like any other teacher is because Jesus is one who speaks with authority while also not having a roof over his head. Jesus says, tells this man that the foxes have holes to live in. The birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, scribe, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to give up everything. And can you imagine the weight that that would feel for that scribe? Jesus is not only asking him to, to, to live in a place where it may not be safe or comfortable, but he's saying that even the stuff that you do have, you may not be able to keep because to follow Jesus, you may have to give it all up for the sake of his name. But the one thing that we have to remember church is that if you lose everything in this world, if this whole world passes away, that Jesus is enough that Jesus is enough for you. He is the all satisfying one. He is the one who took your sins upon the cross and he cares for you. He is enough for you. So that's one thing that the scribe had, had a hard time with. Even if you lose everything, even if the scribe lost everything, he would have Christ and Christ alone. There's so many good things in this world. Like even a good teacher Finding a good teacher is a good thing in this world. Finding someone to follow, whether it's on a podcast or Instagram or a pastor that you're following, but because that, that person is a human, they're going to fail you. They're going to disappoint you. I was so reminded of this in two months ago, the U S had the strongest economy in the history of the world. Two months ago. Now it's in a total mess right now. And many of us are looking to our homes or investments or whatever it may be for some kind of security. This world and the things in it, the things that we put our trust in, they will disappoint. And so Jesus is, is, is asking us to put our, our hope and our trust in him because he is worthy of our undivided hearts. In verse 21, this second man approaches. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now this, this man is not one of the 12 um, disciples. One of the 12 of Jesus's disciples. He's probably a disciple to some extent follows Jesus at some extent. Um, And this man's father is not dead at this point. According to Jewish customs, you have to bury the dead within 24 hours. And this guy would not be talking with Jesus if his father had just died. Um, many of the commentators that I was reading were actually saying that, that this man was, was most likely waiting around for his inheritance from his father after his father died. So when he says that I will follow you, but I will first go bear, I need to first go bury my father. What he's essentially saying is, I will follow you, Jesus. Jesus, I'll, I promise I'll follow you, but I need to make sure I have all of this stuff in place first. 
I need to do this and I need to make sure all these ducks are in the row before I can truly commit to following you. Jesus senses that hesitation in his, in his heart and he can perceive his heart is not, is not, is not undivided for him that, that Jesus can see that this guy has more than one love in his heart and Jesus is getting the lesser of those. If this man getting an inheritance is not, is not a bad thing, is not an evil thing. But when that becomes the thing, the thing over Jesus, Jesus wants nothing to do with it, especially in this context. <clears throat> Church, we've, we've got to understand in, in, in the, the point that Jesus is pushing at was the same point that, that the Old Testament points to is that we were created by God. We were created for God. We were created for the glory of God to worship him and him alone. The first commandment that we should love the Lord, our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength with all of it, not half of it. And, and I'm sure like, I'm sure you guys stopped when Jesus's response was so stark and it might feel really abrupt and insensitive, but at this point, I don't believe that Jesus was being insensitive. I think that Jesus truly desired for complete and immediate obedience out of this man, because he knew that that was for the greater good of this man and for the glory of Christ, for this man to, to drop everything he had and follow after Jesus. But there, there's a, there's a, a great quote that I, that I heard regarding this passage by David Platt and Platt says, we know from the whole of scripture that Jesus doesn't call every one of his followers to not have a home. He doesn't call every one of his followers to leave family behind, but he does call every single one of us to live with unconditional trust in him and to have an undivided affection for him. Following Jesus, it may mean that you have to sacrifice a lot, that you may face suffering and trials and pain and sickness. There's going to be that in this world, regardless of Jesus, because we live in a broken and fallen world. Following Jesus may mean that you get to keep your home for now or that things go really well for you. But even if you lose everything for the sake of Christ, for following after Christ, if you lose your inheritance, if you lose your home because Christ is calling you somewhere else, there is hope. There is hope for you. Because Jesus has wonderful promises all throughout his word for us. And one of those is found in 11 chapters later in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 28 through 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, listen here, church, everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Praise God for that truth. Praise God for that truth that there is, there is reward for following Jesus. That even if you lose everything in this life, you will receive a hundredfold in the life to come and eternal life. That is, that's good news church. 
So Jesus is worthy of our undivided hearts. And Jesus is also worthy of our complete trust and dependence. Verse starting in verse 23, as we move down. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea and there was a great calm and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds in the sea obey him? I think it's really interesting that um, just the start of this, of verse 23, how it starts out, where throughout this passage, Jesus's command is to follow, follow me. So Jesus says, follow me, follow me. The disciples followed him and there arose a great storm. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if anybody else was expecting that when you follow Jesus, that things will go well. But in this story, that when you follow Jesus, Jesus's disciples were led straight into a great storm on a little boat. I don't think that this, I know that this storm was not on accident, that this, that this storm, that Jesus knew about this storm And this storm was ultimately for the joy of the disciples and the glory of God. Jesus used this storm for many, for many reasons. We see that Jesus used this storm in order to produce a faith and a joy in the hearts of their, of his disciples, that they may see his divinity and his power over all creation, that they would see that he is the one true God, that that would stir in them affections for Christ in Christ alone, that, um, that this time that as Jesus takes them, goes with them into the storm, that their faith may be strengthened and that their discipleship may be advanced. I don't know about you, but when, when I think about the advancement of my discipleship or strengthening my faith, my, my faith isn't, isn't, strengthened much when I go on vacation. Like if I'm going to the beach on vacation, I may push off quiet time for a little bit, or I may be a little lax and, and wanting to seek out people to share Christ with, or my prayer life may go like you don't typically your, your discipleship and your faith don't, don't strengthen when, when typically when things are going very well, it's, it's when you're faced with with struggles and trials that, that your faith begins to really explode. That's look at the early church. The church exploded because they were under persecution because that, that threat was there. They clung all the more tightly to Jesus. So in this moment with the disciples, when they are in the boat, they're clinging to the only thing that they know is safe, truly safe. We know that these disciples, these 12 guys are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. That they, they, at the beginning of the gospels, they left their families. They left their jobs. They left the things that were most comfortable to them. And so that took some faith to, to, to leave everything that they have and, and follow Jesus. And then even though Jesus rebukes them for the little faith they have, they do have faith. They cry out, save us, Lord, we're perishing. 
and they didn't ask Jesus for help to, for Jesus to save them because Jesus was some nautical sailing master. No, the 12 disciples knew more about sailing and being on the seas than Jesus did. They, they called out, cried out to Jesus because they knew Jesus was something different that he had power that they didn't have. And so they put their faith into, into Jesus. They saw that Jesus, they saw Jesus as someone who, who was unlike any of them. And so after this, Jesus rebukes them for their little faith to remind them that, that this moment is used for the strengthening of their faith. And then he rebukes the wind and the seas. And when he rebukes the wind and the seas, the, the word says that there was a great calm. Now the disciples at this point, I'm sure that they were terrified during the storm, but this is another kind of scared that these disciples are experiencing in this moment. When a storm goes from furious and windy and crashing waves, their boat was swamped with waves to be immediately calm and peaceful. Like that had to shock their soul when they, when they considered what just happened. And their first response is that they marveled. They marveled not at what just happened in the ocean or in the sea, but how that happened. These, these disciples are Jewish men who understood verses like Psalm eighteen fifteen that says that Yahweh is the one who, who rebukes the wind in the sea. But, but what sort of man is this that even, even the sea and the winds obey him? They're, they're totally confused at this point, but everything comes full circle for them when they recognize that Jesus, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus, the God man is in the boat with them. That Jesus, being fully God, fully man, came into the boat with them, through the storm with them. And can you imagine the joy and the hope and the confidence that these disciples would feel in this moment? That they could face anything because they have Jesus. So church, I, I pray, I pray that, that we would remember that whatever trial, whether it's COVID or cancer or whatever struggle, it may be that Jesus, God himself is in the boat with you. That w- whether you follow him to your neighbor's house or overseas to an unreached area of the world, that Jesus is with you. And that should produce a joy and a faith in your soul. And may that, may that stir a love for Jesus in your heart that is beyond comparison. So Jesus is worthy of our complete trust and dependence. So church, as I close, I pray and I ask that you would pray and meditate and see if there's something or somewhere that Jesus is asking you to follow him to. I don't know the context that you're in. Every person has a different context that, that, that we're living in, whether it's in Parker or another state or somewhere else in the world, you know, your context and you know what, what God could be calling you to. How, how will you answer that call of Christ to come and follow me? Maybe it's to go and, and engage your neighbor and meet your neighbor. Maybe it's to share a meal with them. 
Maybe Jesus is saying, Hey, come follow me to, to consider foster care or come follow me for the spread of the gospel among all nations. We know that it is absolutely worth it to follow Jesus, wherever he may be leading you. So may we as a church, may we meditate and pray upon this passage and may it stir in our hearts, a love and a joy for Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly father, we praise you. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for the promise that your son not only came and died for our sins and offers us eternal life forever, God, but that your son calls us to follow him, that you desire for us to join you in this mission that you have for your church. God, and I ask that each of us here would consider that call. And that we would prayerfully consider it, that we would meditate and and look upon this text this week and see what you may have for us, God. I ask that you would lead us. Um, Thank you for this time. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.